Hello and welcome to this edition of the Matt Adams Podcast, coming to you semi-live from the southeast side of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm your host, Matt Adams, and joining me as usual, well, special correspondent, Ann Adams. Hello. And uh, today's show is going to be a little bit different of a format. We're not really going to have, uh, it's going to be kind of a, a free-forming, uh, kind of groovy thing where anything can happen. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we saw Dune over the weekend, and we were going to, you know, do kind of a normal show, talk about Dune, and then go into what are you reading, what are you writing, and cover some other stuff. But we decided, you know what, Dune was, it was a long movie, there's a lot to talk about with it, we were talking a lot of, about a lot of stuff on the way home after the movie, that we decided we could probably just go ahead and just do an episode focused solely on Dune, so... That's what we're going to do this time, and, and we're going to try to keep it to an hour, an hour and a half, and we'll see where things go. Yeah, we have no talking points. We're just sort of shifting with the dune sands, if you will. Yeah, uh, the, the show notes literally are just a Microsoft Word document that I just opened, and at the top it says dune. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show notes. So if you haven't seen the movie or um, read the book or anything like that, we are going to get into some spoilers because we're, we're going to kind of talk substantively about the plot and the things that happened um, in this movie and uh, probably talk a little bit about the what it sets up, some of the things that may happen in the sequel. Now, also important to note, we are, we're coming at this from kind of two different viewpoints. Anne has not read the book Dune and had uh, pretty much what, would you say zero idea of what the movie was about? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'd always heard of Dune. I knew that it was a very uh, groundbreaking science fiction movie. Um, I didn't realize that the actual book had been written so long ago. Mm -hmm. yep. I figured 1965. it had been... Okay, because I thought it had been written probably in like the 70s, maybe early 80s. So I was really surprised to hear that it had dated all the way back to the 60s. So, and it is definitely one of those foundation science fiction mm -hmm. books that really kind of helped pave the way. And a lot of people don't realize how much it influenced Star Trek and Star Wars and some of the other sci-fi um, movies and books and things that you're just so used to. There, there are so many tropes in science fiction and fantasy and a lot of them owe, you know, in fantasy, they, they owe them all, not all, but they owe a lot of it to the Lord of the Rings. And in science fiction, a lot of the foundational stuff is in, especially when you look at Star Wars, there are a lot of parallels in Star Wars, whether subconsciously or as sort of a nod to Dune, but they're there. And uh, so Anne was not familiar with anything really with Dune other than it existed. Uh, you were aware that there was a movie adaptation in 1984, but didn't know anything about the 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 adaptation from 1984, had not read the book. Now, I, for a long time, did not know anything about Dune. I knew it was a movie in 1984. I knew that it was poorly received. I knew that David Lynch directed it. I knew that Kyle MacLachlan played the main character. Patrick Stewart uh, is, plays um, uh, Gurney Halleck in, in that particular movie. At one point, he has what I would call the war pug, where he's just <laughs> holding a dog for some reason. Um, I had, I had never seen it. I only really knew about it because, uh, when it had like its, uh, premiere or something at some point they were showing it on A and E and they showed commercials for it. And I thought, Oh, it might be interesting because they showed this like shot of like Patrick Stewart in the sand. And I like Patrick Stewart, but I never, I never watched it. So, um, but it, it's kind of like, I've never read the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings either. Those are kind of foundational books for people who are into science fiction and fantasy. Um, I tried to read 
uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's just, it's just, you know, God love you if you love it, just not my thing. Um, and I think you've tried to. Did you read the Tolkien books? I made it through. Um, I made it through the Fellowship of the Ring. I made it through about three fourths of the two towers, and then I was, I was. You'd, done. you'd had enough. It was, it was hard. Just too, <laughs> the, the language is too dense. It's not a, it's not a it light. It was, read. it was, it was, yeah. And so, I loved it, but I, yeah, just too much. Yeah, we'll we'll stick to the extended editions, I suppose, of mm-hmm. the movie, so you can, uh, you know, uh, pelt us with stones accordingly. Um, so I had not had any familiarity with Dune, but uh, then Dil- Denny Villeneuve. Uh, I but Villeneuve 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 Denis Villeneuve um, directed this and it's a, big, a big budget movie from Warner Brothers. It premiered uh, on HBO Max as well, and uh, it was one of those movies supposed to be out, you know, in 2020 when and it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And but I think that unlike some of the other movies from 2020, it being pushed back and then released in Europe slowly and then coming back to the United States. I think it only helped it. I think it might have helped it. I think it helped build Surprising. some buzz. I think it helped build some buzz. Whereas it hurt movies like James Bond and Wonder Woman and some of the other like uh, movies that you know people were really looking forward to and then it sort of lost momentum. I think Dune really built up momentum. And, and we'll have to see. It had a good opening weekend. Um, like the high estimates for it were like $35 million. And then the weekend actual well, I don't know what the weekend actuals were, but um, the the it actually came in at about forty million here domestically in the wow. U.S., which was quite a bit higher than uh, even some of the rosier studio estimates. Now the problem is it's a very expensive movie. When you have a very expensive movie that you also spend a lot of money producing uh, on uh, not producing but uh, promoting then you have to make quite a bit of money at the box office worldwide in order to make a profit from that movie, which is, I mean, we love movies, we love Marvel, we love the DC stuff, we love science fiction and and everything, but ultimately those are products that exist in order to make the studio's money. And so Dune needs to make money for the studio. And what's interesting is the book is long, it's about 600 pages, and they have not greenlit a sequel to this because Warner Brothers is kind of sitting on their hands and they're trying to say, is this going to be big enough for us to make a franchise where we can do, you know, two, three, four films out of this? And so, you know, I don't know if we'll see a sequel or not, um, but may- maybe we will. But when it when it opens, it does say Dune Part 1, which leads you to believe that there should be at least a Dune Part 2. Uh, but to get back to uh, me, I had a co-worker... Uh, Jeremiah, who is really big into Dune, and he was really excited about like when they first did like the the teaser trailer and all that stuff. And I'm like, it looks really good. Like, it, like it looks good. Like it's a beautiful movie, which is what that Denny V, the director, does. Uh, really beautiful stuff. He's done Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, which I think's really a really good film. And so you know, he said, it's great, man. I, I you got you got to read Dune. You got to read it. So. Um, I read Dune, and I really did like the book. Now, I, I I can see where people wouldn't like the book. It's, it's I think it's fairly readable, but it does hit you with like it's got all of this entire this entire vernacular of its own, and it does not take the time to hold you by the hand and explain what these things are. Like it just it just it's like Frank Herbert just takes you 
uh, to the deep end of the pool and just throws you, throws you in and expects you to swim and understand stuff. And um, so sometimes that, that requires you to read back and, you know, look back at what you just read and try to process it. Uh, interestingly, when the movie came out in 1984, the, the adaptation from David Lynch, um, they distributed a glossary of terms uh, for people to try to help them understand what this movie really? was about. Yes. Wow, that's surprising. To try to explain a little impressive. To try to explain some of the concepts and stuff that, you know, are in the book that they they hit you with. So anyway, I was not uh, didn't really have much knowledge of Dune, and then I read the book, and I really did like the book. Now I have not read um, Children of Dune or Dune Messiah or God Emperor of Dune or any of the other myriad uh, spinoff books that have been done by like Herbert's son and. Kevin J. Anderson, there's a whole world of Dune stuff, and that's kind of what Warner Brothers is kind of hoping to, you know, they want to try to try, try to monetize that because we're in the 21st century and it's all about monetization. But I haven't read any of that. I've only read the first book, and so that is where my knowledge pretty much uh, ends, although I have read, you know, uh, an odd uh, Wikipedia entry here and there about, you know, some of the, how, where some of the characters end up and stuff like that in sort of the future films. So I guess, uh, the first thing I will say is I thought that it was an excellent adaptation of the book that tried to be as faithful to the text as it could be that ended at a point that made sense for the book, but may leave some film goers dissatisfied uh, or unsatisfied because, like in Fellowship of the Ring, there are story arcs and character arcs in Fellowship of the Ring that are all resolved, but the greater quest of Fellowship of the Ring, um, you know, getting the ring back to Mordor and all that, is not um, resolved. And so you know that that's where that has to pick up. But they do kind of close everybody's story to a certain point in that first movie. It's a complete story. I don't know that this movie is a complete story um, that resolves itself. It tried. It tried. It tried. It tried to stop at a place where you weren't hanging, and it tried to... Um, I mean, we can talk more about that in the spoiler yeah, part yeah, of the show, yeah. but it tried to... I, I really think it didn't... It didn't do it itself any favors by saying Dune Part, part 1. one. But I'm also the kind of person that believes that if you're going to do a series, at least put out, if you know it's only going to be two parts, go ahead and green light the sequel. Yeah. Because if there's enough buzz, if the movie does do well and there's enough buzz, or if people know that there's going to be a sequel, they'll go see it. People are weird. They will do that stuff. So, I mean, I honestly think they should have just gone ahead and done the sequel, especially if they're going to have people in this movie that are so well known. Well, and and the fact that the movie's been delayed. So, like, all this time, let's say that they did have a, a part two that was greenlit and ready to go. Not ready to go, but that, that was greenlit. Like, they've done the production design and, and they've, they've got, you know, everybody locked down on their contracts and stuff like that. They could have been well into the development of the second movie 
to capitalize on any momentum that you might have from the first movie. But instead, the movie's delayed, the movie's delayed, the movie's delayed. They've not greenlit a sequel, at least to my knowledge, unless there's some sort of secret pact between Warner Brothers and Denny V. <laughs> um, so that means that with these big stars that are in this movie, um, you know, and just the scope and the time that it takes to make a movie like this and the post-production and all that, you're still out a couple, two, three years probably from being able to get a sequel into theaters. And I think that's a real big miscalculation by the studio. Yeah. Now, also, I, I just I don't know because Denis Villeneuve is not real happy with Warner Brothers when they announced that all of their you know theatrical movies this year would be coming out on HBO Max simultaneously with a theater release. Oh my gosh. And it didn't even come out simultaneously. It came out like a day before. It came before out a day early. 6 p.m. The on theater, Thursday. The theater release. And I was like, what the what? Yeah. I mean, it's... it's. Uh, I mean, I know the pandemic's not over, but it's sort of pretty much fallen like to the to kind of a medium. I mean, we still have people it's who get ill. Gotta keep, There's people, still you know, keep it in mind. We still have to be mindful of it. It's not going away anytime soon. But I think we're to the point where we're away from the height of it, where they can step back from that for yeah. now. And I understood why HBO... And get people going back to the movies again. I understood why HBO Max did it. They did it for two reasons. One is because of the uncertainty surrounding the, the theatrical experiences, whether or not people would be coming back to theaters to, to see movies. Uh, that's sort of the, the pure of heart uh, motive. But the real motive is they want to get people subscribed to their new streaming service, HBO True. Max. Well, and if they do have a deal for, you know, with their, it may be a way too to get actors to make, you know, actors may make more money off of the platforms. But, Who knows? I don't know. But I, I know that the director was not happy with um, the movie being done simultaneously on the big screen and, and HBO Max. Now, I understood the reason behind it for both the pragma pragmatic and sort of compassionate reasons that there are still a lot of people who don't want to go to movies. And I, I do not blame them for not no, wanting to be in a, a small enclosed space with a bunch of people you don't know. Well, and if you are going to keep the, if you are going to keep that medium, then why not do what they did with Shang-Chi, which is, you know, let it be out for a week or two. Get, get a theatrical window. And yeah. then, you know, put it out onto HBO now, it, Max. It's kind of one of those things that they, they made that commitment and... They're, they had to, they it's felt just, like they had it's to It's a double-edged sword in many ways. And just... and so though they will be watching the viewing numbers for this movie. Like if, if you're interested in this at all and you have HBO Max, just play it on a loop at home. You don't even have to watch it. Just <laughs> do us all a favor. Boost those numbers <laughs> um, so the people who would like to see a sequel uh, will be able to, 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 to get a sequel. And I, I will say this. Um, I don't. I, I think some directors are pretty snooty about it, um, the theatrical experience, and you can never experience a movie unless you watched it on the big screen. It's I, not the same. I, I, it really isn't. I, but I don't. I don't buy that. I think you can still watch, enjoy, and understand. Oh, for sure. A movie at home. It'll never be the same. It'll as not going be the same to a movie theater. No. There's something about that that's just part of the almost like the American experience. Yes. It's just. There's something about that that everyone does that at least once in their life. 
to see like the big movies. You know, even my dad is still like that. If there's mm-hmm. a big movie, he wants to see it in the theater. Now, like, did, did you uh, inform D- uh, a friend of the show, Dean Bankin, that we had a sneak preview of Dune? I did not. Okay, all right. I did not. Well, because we're, we'll go see it uh, probably this week again, and I didn't know how I needed to pretend on that. Um, <laughs> so now, now I know. Well, I don't want him to feel bad, so I just didn't say anything. Yeah. I wasn't sure what you wanted to do on that. We'll, so. just, we'll just pretend like It'll we hadn't seen it. It'll be our secret. We'll just pretend we hadn't seen it yet. And then retroactively years later, if he ever listens to this podcast, he'll know that we uh, pulled one up over on him. So sorry, sorry, Dean. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that you, I think you can enjoy a movie at home. I mean, we didn't go and watch Tenet on the big screen. That was a big push from Christopher Nolan. It's got, must be, you must watch this movie on the big screen. It is the only way to watch Well, it. and you also have to think that now people have like 70 inch TV screens right. where years and years ago, you did not have that. No. And now it's more, it's easier to have a theatrical experience in your home than it used to be. So, you know, it, again, it's all relative to how you look at it. Listen, do I recommend sword. that you download the HBO Max app on your phone and watch it in parts at bed at, at night? No. No, I don't I don't recommend that. If that's how you consume movies though, that's fine. And again, just put it on loop so that it gooses <laughs> it gooses the viewership numbers because they're going to look at that and they're also going to look at the international box office. As to whether or not they're going to greenlight this this part two, I bet it was. I, I mean, it's been pretty popular over in Europe. Yeah, it's People done. It's done well. It. It's done well over there, and then it needs to find the American audience over here. So, well, and let's just say that uh, no offense to the American audience, but they're not quite as um, intellectual when it comes to movies as opposed to the Europeans. I say, don't don't quote me on this, but I believe Venom: Let There Be Carnage might be the top grosser here domestically. <laughs> can't remember it's it's right up there it's either it or fast nine i can't remember exactly but or shang chi shang chi was good but i venom was not like we'll, we'll do a podcast on venom uh later but like my point it, it supports Ant's point is what i'm saying um so we'll, we'll just have to see and again if you liked and it's not that we didn't like the venom movie it's just it's a completely different type of movie from what dune is dune has aspirations to be something a little bit higher, something that's important Mm -hmm. in sort of the filmography of all time. And Venom does not have those ambitions. It's meant to be an hour and a half slugfest. And there are places for both types of movies, but it does not have the artistic aspirations of Dune. Now, that being said, Anne, as someone who had no idea what was going on as far as going into this movie, what it was about or anything, did you feel overwhelmed by stuff or do you feel that they kind of helped lead you into this kind of uh intensely weird world of dune no they i i liked it i really did like dune um i you had told me you hadn't really told me a lot about the book but you the one thing you had said was you know if you've read lord of the rings and if it was very like intensive, because I've told you before that it was very, it's very intensive about right. It's it's hard to get things. through. Yes, like because they have to stop and like explain a lot of things. Like you have to, it, they have to teach you about the world. And I really think that you know everybody's different as far as how they write. Um, nothing wrong with J.R.R. Tolkien; he's an amazing writer. But one of the the things that he did was he 
immersed you in the world by really teaching you. And in that case, I mean, you could be just learning like three chapters about the life of hobbits. I mean, but Dune, I mean, obviously I've not read the book, but I think in that instance, they were able to throw you into the deep end, but yet they did explain some things along the way and it wasn't too hard to follow, at least not for me. Now I'm not going, <laughs> I'm not going to say that I'm the smartest person in the world, but I think that when it comes to like intellectual sensitivity, I do a pretty good job of, you know, being able to decipher more intellectual movies. But then again, you know, I was in the restroom, I told you after the movie and then these teenage girls who were there, most likely because Timothy, Timothy Chalamet was in it. Suddenly I saw my Chalamet. <laughs> um, now we have to finish the quote, Matt. Let my armies be, be the rocks and the trees and the worms and the sand. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, stop it. And, and the, the worms, worms and the, the sand. sand. <laughs> <laughs> there are worms, ladies and gentlemen, just FYI, you know, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of tremors out there for you. Um, which tremors was probably inspired by Dune. You, you would think so. Anything that has to do with giant sandworms would have to have at least taken some inspiration from it. Yeah. It's crazy how much, how much you can see, um, when you watch Dune, how much, how many, like you said, science fiction tropes are in that, that have been taken and put into other movies. It's really amazing. So but, what, what, did, what did the Timothy uh, but, Chalamet uh, fans have to say? Yeah, the Timothy Chalamet fans, I mean, they they thought, you know, it was a pretty film and everything, but they pretty much were agreed that they had no clue what was going on in that movie. They're like, I don't, did you know what was going on? I had no clue what was going on in that movie. And, and that's been my big concern. That's because, been a concern, yeah. Because in order to for a movie like this to make its money back, in order to get that production budget and make a profit and because they spent a lot of money uh you know also promoting the movie and then they probably had to change a lot of posters for the release date and all that stuff um it needs to hit with a a, a mainstream uh, mainstream audience it can't just be you know the the geek guy with his tattered copy of dune going and seeing it three times mm -hmm. i mean that'll help but they also need to get you know that guy's mom and that guy's sister and you know that guy's friends who's a sports guy you know they need to get those people in to watch this movie and and to understand it as well so you know that that's always been my concern is how accessible because i mean and you know you you like comic book movies you like science fiction stuff you like fantasy movies so a movie like this can hit you with a lot of kind of weird stuff and because it's kind of like other stuff that you've seen before you can you can pivot you can kind of learn to kind of understand it doesn't it doesn't intimidate you whereas with the the chalamet heads there you know <laughs> I, i'm the chalamets almost sounds like a like an r&b group from the or a, it does like it sounds the, like chalamets yeah, like the platters like yeah a motown like group a 1950s uh ooh, group chalamets um but you know i, I just that's my concern is that, that folks like that'll see that movie there. They will not understand any of it. And then, you know, they're not going to want to come back. They're not going to engage with it. They don't that even if a sequel came out, they wouldn't go see it necessarily. I know. And, and I could tell like just thinking about it now from that kind of perspective, 
as somebody, if you're just the kind of person that just not watches nothing like uh, except maybe romantic comedies, Hallmark movies, you know, things you don't have to Fast and Furious, but things you don't wonderful movies, yeah, by the you, way. You're just going but to get, you don't you're have going to be entertained. Yeah, you don't have to think about it. It's not like Inception or Tenet or anything. Yeah, where those, those work on a, an entertainment, yes. but are also an artistic level. That's a they strive for level. something a little bit higher. When if you go see those, you know, it's just if you're looking at it from that perspective, I could see how people could be confused not only by the world that it encompasses, but also I could see that they would be confused by sort of the mythical part of it. Um, the you know, the um what what am i what am i striving for here the um like the mysticism like yeah all the all the different the, the, things that the, go the along the prophetic visions yes, and, yes exactly and, and stuff like that because you know and I, again i read the book i only read it once and i really did enjoy it i will probably read it again at some point and maybe after i read it i might read some of the other books that that they did but even having read it there were a couple things in the film that still kind of confused me and we'll, we'll get into those a little bit later and a lot of it has to do with the prophetic visions and what they mean and and how we're used to seeing those used in movies but how they ended up being used in this one a little bit differently from how maybe we were used to but i thought the basic setup without having to stop and explain a lot they did a pretty good job of trying to weave explanation in there a little bit um, but they, they didn't hit you over the head with the exposition hammer either. No, which, they which didn't. was impressive. They didn't. They cleverly put in information about Eurakis because obviously not much is known about the sand planet Eurakis. Um, and so they did a good job of kind of weaving in the information um, that way um, by, you know, basically having, because he's going there with his family, right. having Timmy Chalamet's character. Uh, is taking lessons about because his family is going to be moving to Arrakis to rule it. So he is basically learning um, about Arrakis through like educational videos and things like that. So that way, you know, too, because his planet's pretty straightforward. It's there's nothing. Yeah, it's this uh, kind of lush. You yeah, know, there's nothing unique about tropical his planet, world. Caladan. Whereas all the other the other two worlds um, are a little bit more complex and you have to learn about, you know, their histories and, you know, all that stuff. So that wasn't too bad. Um, I, I, I still stick with the whole, um, the, the prophetic stuff around Timothy Chalamet's character. Um, I think that that is probably like Paul, I think all that is probably the most complicated part of it, but other than that, I mean, yeah, I can see how a lot of the lay people would be extremely confused. Yeah. But more so the people that aren't into science fiction and fantasy. Like, if you've watched Lore of the Rings, if you watched Star Game, Wars. Game of Thrones, I think. Game a of Thrones. A because there's a lot of political yes. uh, machinations that's going on uh, here that I think. Yeah, if you've exercised your brains by watching movies and shows like that. You should be okay, 
but just the like a teenager or a young person or even an older person who you know maybe saw the original film but still had no clue what was going on because that was a thing back in the 80s wasn't it that people had no clue what this movie was about yeah back then they were all like what the hell is well and and again this is a 600 and we won't get too much into into the lynch version um because it he had a david lynch you know he's this auteur filmmaker and he had a four hour cut uh, allegedly of, of the movie. And then the studio made him trim it down and, oh, wow. uh, to like two hours. So they've taken the 600 page book, which is already very difficult to adapt. And then they've cut this thing down to like a two hour movie. And it's, it's a mess, uh, kind of a beautiful mess, but it's, it's, it's a mess. And, um, but the, it tries to tell the whole story of Dune in, in two hours and I can just tell you, 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 you can't do that. I mean, they did a pretty admirable job here. They broke in this movie at about the point that I thought they would break uh, based on having read the book. And uh, again, this is full spoilers. So the movie ends when Paul and his mother meet up with the, the Fremen. And they're kind of taken into their, into their care. And that's where I thought that it, that would make a good breaking point to, to set up what happens in the, in the other. It's a little... It's at the halfway point of the book, or a little half, little past the halfway point, and so I, I think it makes sense where they did the book. I think it makes a lot of sense as to the stopping point. But I will never forget going to see the Fellowship of the Ring with my mom and dad, and uh, the Lord of the Rings. You know, they didn't know anything about it. I hadn't really read the book, but you read the reviews. It's like, oh, it's a Star Wars movie for the new generation, you know, and it's kind of like that fantastical. <laughs> So we went to go see that, and I think that that mom liked it okay, but she was very even no, even having known that it, it was still the, a part of a story. When they got on the boat at the end, <laughs> and were just sort of sailing off, Sam and, yes, and Frodo, I and and then you know they were like, "Let's hunt some orc," and you you know they're going to go save Merry and Pippin. It's not a narrative closure to what happens with the ring. So my mom was like, two and a half hours, and. This is where it ends. <laughs> she she was beside herself. She couldn't believe that. Um, and I, I think there'll be a similar feel, feeling from some people too when they when they see this movie. But I thought that given that we know that it's going to be, because because I think the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, is part of a larger series, but it's not really apart like there have been many times over the years where they've done an adaptation of the fellowship of the ring but never did any of the others i think peter jackson was the first person who actually did a full live adaptation of the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and then followed it up with two more movies so i think that most people were okay with that but like they were okay with it ending and, and like, but like your mom, you know, she wasn't expecting it. Right. I don't, I think she she, was thinking, what the heck? Is there more? Is there more? She's probably like, boy, it's two and a half hours and they haven't thrown this ring away yet. And in, in deference to her, you know, Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring doesn't really have a ton of stuff going on in it. It's sort of a setup movie. It's a setup movie. And Dune, I mean, it had a lot going on in it from the beginning. I mean, there really was no, you know, quiet time 
Except when Paul was asleep and having his dreams about Zendaya, who was have in her own little music video <laughs> with the sand and their hair blowing, blowing and stuff. Yeah, it was it was that was awesome. What did you say? You had said something about that in the car that someone had said that. Yeah, so, someone said that uh, Zendaya's in the movie for about seven minutes, and and as you had had alluded to, spent most of it in a music video. <laughs> Which we, we, we got a kick out of it's very I mean because yeah there's just you only these... see her for like 15 minutes at the end really in person yeah I don't even think it's that long I, I think she has like seven minutes of screen time and of course she's, she's she's prominently featured on the movie poster yes. and in the, in the marketing and stuff as well yeah um, well but, she's a big character in the book I mean but... and that, and that's the thing too I mean even though her character isn't in it a whole lot she is really the whole impetus for this story and being in Paul's dreams and stuff. And I mean, to the credit of the filmmaker, the movie starts off with kind of a, a minute or two of, of narration with her um, sort of talking about her planet and how they've been oppressed. And now the Harkonnens are suddenly gone, but who will our new oppressors be and all this stuff. And, um, it's it's funny because in the the Dune the the Lynch version the 1984 one starts with a character who's not hardly in the movie at all gives about a two and a half minute narration to try to explain stuff like the Space Guild and Spice and Dune. See, and, you don't need that. <clears throat> that's that's gonna lose you real quick. No, yeah, it, it was bad. And then she like fades out and fades back in. And my favorite part is she goes, <laughs> "Oh, yes." I forgot to tell you. And that, it's like, it, <laughs> you're like, no, no more. No more. <laughs> um, but here, you know, they, they reframed it so that Shani and the, the Fremen and their planet and the plight of their planet were kind of at the center of, of this story, as opposed to uh, the 84 version, which, and the book, which kind of makes the, the, the Imperium uh, and the politics at the center. They tried to make it a more, I think personal story on yeah. on that level because this Eurakis, this sand planet that supposedly has a lot of a, an abundance of spice, mm -hmm. is something like a politically strategic place that people like different planets, like different uh, worlds, have been fighting over. Right, and you know the emperor will give it to one species, and then he'll give it to another, and. Who's had it for the longest? The Harkonnens? I think the Harkonnens had it for like 80 years or something like that. I think that's what one of the characters... I think that's what Dave Bautista's yeah. character screams out at, at yes, some point. Yes, the Harkonnens led by Dave Bautista and Stellan Skarsgård. Finally, a man worth killing. <laughs> um, Who was in his mumbling element. Let's yeah. just say that. Like You can watch it with the subtitles oh on. Oh my it, God. It probably can would we, help. Yes. Can we talk about the mumbling that was one thing that I had a hard time with. Like, but see, I have a problem where I can't hear at a certain pitch. So if someone is talking at a certain level or if they're like mumbling, like doing the whisper mumbling, I cannot understand a word they're saying. And the woman, who is that actress that plays the mom of uh, Paul? Rebecca Ferguson, I think. Yeah, she is a great actress. But every movie she's ever been in, I have never understood anything she said. And I was a little weary when I saw that she was playing kind of a big part because yeah, I'm she's like, got a big role. Lady Jessica's a big, I'm really like, big I role. I don't know if I can understand this lady. And I understood probably about 
60% of what she was saying, but she was just, she was whispering the whole time. And it was like, I didn't really want to see the version with subtitles because I felt like it would take away the beauty you, of you're, the you're, film. You're so focused on reading the, the movie yeah, that you, you missed I was afraid the, the details I'd miss, on the Yeah, screen. I was afraid I'd miss the cinematography. Um, Which is exceptional Yes, in this it's movie. beautiful. Um, but I think... If I go back and watch, I think it'll some certain parts probably will clarify make some more stuff sense. because I mean yeah. they had there there's sort of a whispering and then Paul has some visions and then they're kind of talking about the visions and what's happening and then there's the people are speaking in the visions but it's not real clear. I think subtitles would kind would of help, help clear some of that up. For um, sure. But the, the basic story of Dune is that. Arrakis is this place where spice is uh, is the only place in the universe where spice exists. Spice melange, and it's uh, a very powerful chemical that can uh, extend life. It's an addictive drug, but most importantly, it makes interstellar space travel possible. And it's kind of cool because it comes sort of out of the sand comes out into of the, sand. the it's air, like this little sparkly, these little sparklies. Yeah. So if you live on Arrakis and you're exposed to it for a long time, you get like these really bright blue <clears throat> eyes, intense blue eyes. It's fascinating. Anyway, I just had to mention that. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, that's why the planet's so important here, and and that substance is so important because it allows for uh, you can't do interstellar travel without spice. Uh, because the navigators, the, the Spice Guild navigators, have to, uh, they ingest a large amount of this. It allows them to sort of see on a higher plane and steer through the stars. That's that's why you've got to have the, the spice. And so the Harkonnens have been in control of uh, that planet for a very, very long time. They're they're not nice people. Uh, they've oppressed the civilization. Um, and and they, they were given that by the Emperor. I believe okay. at some point they were, Yeah. And, they didn't just come in and take control. No, they, no, they didn't just come in and okay. take control. And so also as they've held that for years, the Imperium or the, the, the Emperor starts to notice that there's a certain uh, leader of the House of Atreides, uh, Duke Leto, who is starting to kind of make a name for himself out in the galaxy. And people seem to really like Duke Leto. Because, well, he's played by Oscar Isaac, and who doesn't like Oscar Isaac? And he has fantastic hair in this movie! Really, really good beard work and hair work oh, from it's Oscar amazing. Isaac in this one. Whoever did his hair, I mean, they deserve an Chef's Oscar. Kiss. They deserve an Oscar. Uh, but anyway, so the, the Emperor and the Harkonnens start to see that Duke Leto's kind of coming up in the world. And because he's, he's well-liked, um, he could be a threat to the throne, especially if he were to marry into the right house or something like that, because even though he has Lady Jessica, she's technically a concubine uh, because he has kept himself open for a political marriage for House Atreides. And so what, what they do, and this is the, the, the plot, um, the emperor takes Arrakis, Arrakis away from the Harkonnens and gifts it i'm making air quotes for he's making air quotes, quotes just fyi sorry i do that um you'll see this on youtube wait no no you won't um <laughs> i'm glad i hope they don't see this on no, youtube because I'm, I'm in my jam yeah, so right now <laughs> and so um they, they give uh, a rackus to um duke leto the atreides family 
and they're supposed to, to manage it and, and make the money from it and supply the spice to everybody. But what it is is it's just a big setup. Um, they're going to give the planet back to the Harkonnens and ambush Duke Leto and kill his family uh, because they were afraid of the power that House Atreides was, was having. So as soon as they give, the, give it over to House Atreides and they take over Dune, then um, the Emperor conspires with the Harkonnens to, to take the planet back. And they do kill uh, Duke Leto and they, they kill a lot of the, the House Atreides people, but there's a few that survive. Uh, Paul and his mom survive. Paul Atreides and his mom, Lady Jessica, survive. Um, Duncan Idaho survives the attack. Um, <laughs> which a- a- Ann and I, we were walking the other <sighs> night, and we were just, like, matching first names with states. Like, oh, Terry, T- Terry California. and <laughs> Luke Pensacola. <laughs> Daniel Nevada. I mean, you just, you know. Rob Montana. <laughs> We were just having a really good time with that because you've got all these uh, kind of ornate names and, and exotic names, and then you've got Duncan, Idaho, kind of in the middle <laughs> we were of like, this. like, what is the thought process behind this soldier named Duncan, Idaho? <laughs> Joe, Indiana. I mean, yeah, you I know, mean, it's, you just... we, we, got a, we got a real kick out of that the other night. But anyway, so some, some of them do survive, um, but that's, that's the, the plot uh, of... The scheme is we got to take out House Atreides because they're they're growing too influential, they're growing too powerful, and Duke Leto's a nice, decent person. We can't have that in this world, so we got to get rid of him. So he's kind of a sort of a Ned Stark figure. Uh, I know, in, in a way. And poor Ned Stark. Everybody knows. Spoiler alert: If you've not seen Game of Thrones, but he loses his head in like the first like what two or three episodes of the series uh, i think he or does, does he make it longer i think he makes it to like the eighth or ninth episode oh okay before well he, loses he definitely his head. loses his head and then most people i think at that point were like okay i'm done yeah this, if you've not oh, read those over. books and i hadn't that was just like what what i love sean bean why are they cutting his head I know. off so sad Isn't and i kind of guy? felt i kind of felt that way about oscar isaac you, I you turned at, to me i and, looked at matt in the theater i'm like no and he was like yeah i'm like damn it yeah, well, uh, Duke Leto must die so that Paul may rise and to be the, the leader of House Atreides. I know. And Paul is uh, very significant to the world. In what way, Matt? Well, Paul uh, is the culmination of centuries of genetic engineering on the behalf of a religious order of women known as the Bene Gesserit, who have been... Or I like to call them the creepy witches. The creepy space witches, <laughs> um, who have been trying to create a super being to guide mankind into a glorious, prosperous future. Like a messiah. A, mess- a messianic figure, yes. And um, it's called the Quisatz Haderach, is uh, their technical name for it. And interestingly... Uh, the way this was supposed to play out in the Bene Gesserit plot was that Lazy, Lady Jessica was supposed to have a girl. And this girl would then have been wed to somebody from a house, and they, they would have then produced the, the Messiah figure. Uh, but Lady Jessica either knew better or uh, had a different idea, and so she gave Duke Leto a son so the Atreides line could continue and uh, thought that she had birthed the Kwisak Haderach a uh, kind of a generation early. So why did they choose Lady Jessica? Is it just because she was the one of the more powerful ones in the order? 
Uh, it, it, it does. It has to go. She's um, with some of her lineage, if I recall correctly. She's actually revealed to be Baron Harkonnen's daughter. What? Shut the front door. Stellan Skarsgård? Mm-hmm. <gasps> she looks nothing like him. Well, thank goodness. That's because he's been poisoned because he didn't follow the Bennett Jesuit rules. Oh, he's a weirdo. Mm-hmm. See, there's so many things we don't know And, and, and then, they don't get into that in the movies, obviously. I think yeah. I'm remembering that correctly, but Paul's like part Harkonnen, um, if I remember right. <sighs> But, That's the sound of my mind blowing. But the, the Bene Gesserit know that about Lady Jessica, but she does not know that. Oh, okay. So she's clueless. She's clueless. She oh, does, okay. she, she's, she's unaware of that. Um, Fascinating. But And also, there's a, a test that, that Paul takes early in the movie um, with the Reverend Mother. You know, he puts his hand in the box and he's not supposed to make a sound. And, and if he pulls his hand out, they're going to stab him in the neck with poison and kill him. And... Um, after he passes that test, uh, I do believe the Reverend Mother says something along the lines of, we have other possibilities out there, too. So they, they've got a few st- uh, a few uh, coals in the fire on trying to create their, their super being. Um, but uh, as it turns out, it is uh, looking to be Paul. And, and Anne was like, she, that was one of the first questions you asked me after the movie, was like, what's the deal with that whole thing? <laughs> And then, um, so, yeah, and, and, and that, that figure is supposed to be able to kind of have special powers, be able to see into the future, and, and try to find the right path to guide humanity on so that uh, we all go on the path to enlightenment and create a better society for everybody. That's kind of the, the, the idea of um, the messianic figure. And then these these Bene Gesserit uh, space witch people have also been to different planets and sort of seeded religions and superstitions because they know that's a very powerful way to control people. You control control people through religion, so they've sort of spread the message throughout different cultures that there's that there are messianic figures. And so for the uh, the Fremen, who are the natives to Dune or Arrakis, uh, that figure is called the Lisan Al Gaib, and um, they start to believe, not necessarily in this particular movie, but <clears throat> down the line, they start to believe that, that Paul Atreides is, you know, the Lisa and Al-Gaib, um, the, uh, the guy that's going to save, become the yeah. savior of Dune. Now, he's been trained by his mom to sort of, I mean, because he has some inherent powers. Right. He's kind of got force powers in a way. Yeah. It's sort of like, yeah, it is a little bit like we were talking about Star Wars, you know, about them having almost like Jedi mind powers in a way. And you have to hone them and really work on them to amplify them or make them stronger. And so she had been working with Paul. But I feel like the interesting thing to me was that even though uh, she was teaching Paul to kind of hone his um, his inner voice, because they have like a like a voice that they can use to control people, kind of like Jedi mind control. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of creepy how they. It is a creepy it. voice too, um, and so they have something like that. But then they also she knows that he's been having some dreams mm-hmm. and. So, sort of, I hate to say visions because he's not really awake, but he does have sort of. Yeah, they're visions. They're, they're premonitions. But they're not very cohesive. No, they're very he like. Get them. He doesn't understand. They're very them. spotty. But I found it fascinating that when he goes to Arrakis, 
And the more time, like after the coup and everything where his father gets overthrown and he and his mom, um, there are a few people that survive like Duncan Idaho that are able to get Paul and his mom out. Um, but they're basically in the desert, like trying to survive so that they could get to the Fremen. Um, and I found it fascinating that the spice yeah he's he's exposed to more spice he's exposed to spice and so his his um his senses are awakened like right. more of his powers are awakened by the spice he's seeing more visions and he's still not necessarily able to interpret all of them but he's yeah. able to interpret some of them um and yeah it's really interesting because uh, spice can expand your mind. But what I thought you you know you had you had mentioned this too, and and I was kind of surprised that they did this because I think it was just confusing. Was um, apparently as Matt was telling me, and it made sense because in the movie you see like different things happening, like in the visions. Like the, there'll be a, a a fight that'll happen, but it'll have one a different outcome. outcome. Yeah, it'll have one outcome this time, and maybe next time it looks like maybe Paul zigged when he should have zagged, and he got stabbed, but he's yeah. fighting somebody, and it, yeah. And you sort of get the gist that it's a little bit, you know, off, but the real the reality of it is that he sees multiple, like, he doesn't see the actual future, he sees possibilities. He sees possibilities, and it took us, we didn't quite, I, I didn't capture that the first time we watched it. Uh -uh. We were a little bit confused by some of the visions because especially he fights a guy at the end of the movie. Um, Janice, I think is the guy's name. And the, he had had visions. He had visions where he's like, yeah. if you follow me, you know, I will lead you like to the way. Like they were becoming friends like they and were he friends. was sort of like his shaman right. when they meets up with the Fremen that supposedly this guy was going to show him He's going to help protect him and stuff. And so... Then they fought, and Paul killed him, and we were like, what the F with maybe, the visions? Maybe that wasn't, I thought, well, maybe that wasn't the same guy. Right, maybe there's just another guy who looks kind of like him. And then Matt read up on it, and he goes, no, wait, it is the same guy. It's just that he's got multiple visions, yeah, he's, he's seeing like multiple possibilities. Multiple possibilities. And I was like, really? I was like... Because now that I look back at the movie and think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense, yeah. But at the time, we, we were, we it were just happened all so fast, maybe, that you're just kind of like, what is going on here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, artistically, maybe they're trying to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Trying to give you that sense of disorientation that Paul is feeling with these visions. But it just presents it in a different way because when, when we see visions in a movie... Typically speaking, um, a character will see something and then that will come to pass. That's what we're used to seeing in a movie when it comes to visions. We're not necessarily used to seeing a character have seen multiple outcomes of a thing mm -hmm. that can go um, conventionally speaking. So that that really threw us off because we're like, why is he fighting this guy? He's not going to kill this guy because he's going to they're going to end up they're going to be buds. They're going to be pals. They're going to wrestle around. Uh, no, he <laughs> killed him. You know, um, and so that, you know, so I, I, I think I'm going to pay real close attention to it the next time that we watch it to kind of see mm -hmm. how, what are some of the different things that he's seeing and how are those being interpreted? Sure. Um, and then of course he does have a freak out 
because he sees really a vision of like the future or a future in which he has plunged the entire world into this gigantic, destructive, deadly, holy war that is done in his name. And he is really not wanting that. Um, and he does have a freak out about that. Um, but I had a hard time understanding, uh, not understanding the, the, the visuals, but I had a hard time hearing Him. what people were, what he was saying during that, during that scene. Again, the low talkers. Yeah. Um, so that, that, I, <clears throat> that took some getting used to. And again, I, I just, I happened to come upon a, a column or something from somebody and, and they just happened to, to mention that this is, this is why this guy that appears in this vision uh, died. And it's because Paul doesn't, he sees possibilities. And um, if the interactions with Paul and Lady Jessica and the Fremen had gone a different way when they encountered each other at the end of the movie, then perhaps that future in which he and, and Janice were friends would have come to pass. But instead, because of the choices they made and the way things worked out, in this particular future, he had, he had to kill him. Uh, in order to to be part of the the Fremen and be part of their siege, so um, that that was definitely probably the the one thing that really befuddled me, um, and I, I kind of feel silly for not necessarily recognizing it, but it's kind of done in an in, in, in unconventional fashion, so I didn't catch it right away. How dare you! But I feel like the movie is exceptionally well cast. Uh, I think Chalamet is really good as Paul. I think uh, Rebecca Ferguson's good as mom. Uh, we've already talked about the greatness that is Oscar Isaac. I'm glad we had Josh Brolin in there as Gurney Halleck. Um, that's a good character. <laughs> he and uh, he and uh, Jason Momoa added some as Duncan Idaho added some much needed comic relief at times. And his. <laughs> His pop, fighting partner, Barry Nevada. <laughs> Barry Nevada. But um, Momo was great. Like, I mean, he was a little bit Momoa, a little bit broy, but and it, it was it weird because um, it was weird because he had no facial hair, which you're so used to seeing him with facial hair because of Aquaman and mm -hmm. some of the other movies and he's done. And, yep. and it's so weird to see him. He looks so young. He looks like a baby without any facial hair. But he he was he was a really cool character. Um, I really liked. You know, he had sort of that uh, that last stand at the end, and it was great because he kind of appeared to die at least one time and then the soldiers were like lasering through the door and he like rose up michael myers yeah. style and like, behind like michael myers <laughs> just kind of rises up in the background and takes him down now the thing is the, the sardaukar who's the, the emperor's um soldiers they are the best fighters in the galaxy uh in the universe you're, you're not supposed to um be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them um and I believe in the books, they say that in that stand there, Duncan Idaho killed 19 Wow, of them. that's impressive. Yeah. So, and, and part of the thing with Duke Leto is when they go to Dune, part of his plan, he thought they had more time. So he, he did not. This plan enacted very, very quickly on to, to take down the I think the he kind of knew something was up. He knew something was up. And his goal, I think, was to get the Fremen on their right. side. So yeah. that if they did show up... 
that they had the Fremen because there were they found out there were probably more Fremen, yeah, millions upon millions of Fremen there on the planet than the Harkonnens and stuff. They only thought there were estimated. like what fifty thousand, I think they said. Yeah, but they, there were all these different sieges that Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho had found out because he he was sent as kind of the scout to mm-hmm. kind of make diplomatic relations with the Fremen. And um, so they kind of found out a little bit more about their numbers and stuff. And what's interesting is the uh, the Sardaukar um, train on a very harsh like prison planet. Uh, we went to it for a scene, and um, that's one of the reasons that they're such badasses is they they live on this like inhospitable planet, and it forces you to sure you know live or die. And that's why the Sardaukar are so good um, as as fighters. And so Duke Leto in this movie at least, believes that because of the inhospitability of Arrakis, that if he can ally himself with the Fremen and train them as a military force, because they live on such a crap, harsh planet and they got to be tough, he believes that they could be raised as an army to challenge the Emperor Sardaukar. Yeah. Because they, they, they live in a similarly sure. inhospitable place. Um, but that, that doesn't work out for Duke Leto, unfortunately. And I, I'm not going to speak to it because uh, I can't remember. I, I felt like in the book that it took a little bit longer for Duke Leto to die because in the initial attempt, he's just kind of, he's stunned. Mm-hmm. And then his, uh, the, the doctor, Yui, I think, is uh, that betrays him, gives him a false tooth filled with poison that he can then break to try to kill uh, Baron Harkonnen. And um, I felt like in the book that it wasn't quite an immediate death, but in the movie, like pretty much once Duke Leto is stunned and captured, um, he he dies not because he, he does unleash the poison. He, he kills a few of the Sardaukar and some of uh, Baron Harkonnen's men, but he doesn't kill Harkonnen, um, which is similar to the book. But I, I felt like that happened a little bit later, but I, I could be mistaken because it has been a little while since I've read the book. Um and maybe it's just I, I wanted to see more Oscar Isaac. I just, I just wanted some more. I just want a few more minutes <laughs> with Duke Leto. Who doesn't? Um, Matt was totally fangirling with me over Isaac over Oscar I, Isaac. I loved him. I loved him in in the Star Wars movies and the in the sequel uh, Who sequel trilogy. Love Oscar Isaac. I just think he's. I think he's great. And I wish. Um, you know, it's always sad when you have a, a character who is uh, in this what is a a really crappy universe and a bad world with a lot of bad people doing bad things and treating others poorly. When you do have a a character who is noble and and appears to be noble and just and compassionate, it's always a downer to lose him. Yeah. But you kind of have to, I mean, it's, it's, it's the Ned Stark, Ned Stark thing. It's, it's a very similar type of circumstance. Uh, he's, he's got to die in order for the, the kid to, you know, rise up. So, um, yeah. Uh, so let's see. We, we talked a little bit about Bene Gesserit. We talked about Lisan Al-Gaib. I just love to say some of these <laughs> things. Um, yeah, if you were hoping to see a lot of Zendaya, yeah, you were not going to see a lot, of, a lot of Zendaya. Yeah. All those teenage boys out there, if you're looking to see Zendaya, it's not happening. You better hope that they green light a part two, because she would be in the part two a lot. There was there was actually a lady that was sitting a couple rows in front of us, and she was like, whenever we when we finally saw the Zendaya, she was like, finally. Like, yeah. whenever we actually saw her in real life in the on Arrakis, she was like, finally. 
Now, I thought... Um, that lady was so annoying. Oh, my God. She had all kinds of commentary during the movie. Thankfully, I didn't hear her too much. You must oh, have been man. just close enough to... And, and I was she sitting right was next to you. She was a pain. She was like that lady from in the during the Da Vinci Code. It's that old man. It's like, okay, yeah, we know. We we got it. We uh, we all saw that coming. Thank you for explaining it to all of us. We appreciate it. Um, had some good, uh, you know. This is they they tried to show the the action in the trailer, and there's not a ton of action in this movie. Um, you basically have a, a an intro from Chani in which there's some Harkonnen stuff going on. Um, there's the attack on uh, the House of Atreides on Arrakis. Uh, there's a really good scene uh, with the 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 spice hauler um, that gets eaten by the sandworm. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a really good scene. It's an important scene in the book. It's an important scene in the movie. Uh, it also is dramatized in the 1984 version of Dune, although it doesn't look quite as good. <laughs> you know, it's 2021, and Denny V is directing this. Uh, the the scale of this movie is immense. I mean, the ships are huge, the planetscapes are huge, um, everything is just really big. It's beautiful, although I have to say that it's got to be a nightmare filming in such vast amounts of sand and desert. I mean, can you imagine having to rake all the footprints and making sure that there's no footprints in the shot? I would, I, I, I bet they probably pay somebody millions of dollars just to make sure that there's no footprints in the shot. I mean, you got to. I guess you can maybe smudge, use the smudge tool in Photoshop. <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, Photoshop it. Well, that's true. That might make it a little easier than having to have somebody walk around behind everybody with a rake, <laughs> like a sand smoother. <laughs> and what, what did you think of the the sandworms? I thought they were cool. I'm interested to see the old Dune. I've never seen the older version of Dune. Um, I would imagine the sandworms are just like puppets in that well, one. That, they they actually do a pretty good job with of animation with, with the sandworms in that. Yeah. So is it like stop animation? Uh, think, I can't remember if it's of... stop stop animation or if it's uh, puppeteering in mats. I can't remember. But yeah, they do an amazing job with the the sandworms. They sort of remind me of the the sand creatures from um, Star Wars. The crate dragons or the sarlaccs? Uh, probably the sarlaccs. Yeah, well, sarlacc. We only see the one. Sarlacc, I am probably but... the. Uh, can I just say that I may just be the only thirty-eight-year-old woman that knows what a sarlacc is? Oh, I don't think you. I don't <laughs> think you're the only thirty-eight-year-old woman who knows what a sarlacc is. But few do. <laughs> the exceptional ones know what a sarlacc is, or what the sarlacc is. The and... sarlacc. But let's see. I'm trying to think if there's... Uh... Oh, we, we didn't really talk too much about the Harkonnens. Oh, yeah. Both well, uh, Dave, Dave Bautista and Stellan Skarsgård. Well, and I feel bad because Dave Bautista, as cool as he is, is not in it that much. And he put on all that makeup and everything, and they don't really use him that much in the movie. Do we see more of him, do you think, in the rest of the book? Would we see him more in part two? I think we'll see him a little bit more. Okay. Um, because the House of Trades slash the Fremen will kind of do an underground guerrilla war against the Harkonnens to take the planet back. And then Stellan Skarsgård is like the head, the leader of the Harkonnens, yes. right? Yes. And he is, I thought it was weird because like he sort of 
stands up in shadow and he looks like he's like this weird oblong figure. But then you explained to me that he's just, he's very, he's big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's obese. Obese. Um, I was just going to say, he's fat. (laughs) He's not Mr. Meal. He's, he's obese and he has to have what, like something under him to like move him. So, cause he can't walk. He's got repulsors underneath to help, help him move. Basically he's a fat man that flies. Yeah, pretty much. And he is part machine, right? I would assume with the repulsors probably. Yeah. Now his backstory is, are, do all the Harkonnens look like that? Uh, I mean, uh, Bautista doesn't look too much better. Um, I think he has a, another nephew that's a little more in in the uh, 1984 version. Because they look more like, because they're like these big gray slobs. They're not even really. Yeah. Um, they're, I, I believe the Baron was, he was poisoned because he didn't exactly do what the Bene Gesserit wanted him to do a few years ago, which is why why he's kind of as he is. Uh, later in the book, and probably in part two, there's another nephew of his, um, Fade, I believe is his name. He was played by Sting in the 1984 <laughs> version. Uh, he's a little bit more palatable um, of a Harkonnen than, say, Beast Raban, which is the, the one that um, uh, Bautista plays. Okay. Um, so they, they do have some better... Uh, more palatable Harkonnens, but those two Harkonnens are not very well, palatable. even though he was in makeup for a short amount of time, I hope they paid him a lot of money, Mr. Bautista, because he's got a lot of pit bulls to support. Well, and he, uh, yeah, he really didn't have much, uh, many lines or anything like that. Um, and, and really, I mean, he's just, he's just muscle. His character's yeah. just muscle. And his uncle's the one who's doing all the scheming. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that I say uncle because Baron Harkonnen doesn't have any kids. Or at least that he knows of. That we all know of. That we all know of. So. And so he that's why he is passing the, you know, that's why his his one nephew, Raban, or Beast Raban, is the Dave Bautista character, is kind of the head of the, the army for him. And then he's got his other nephew, Fade, that he is, is going to be the face of of House Harkonnen. So who do you think is going to be the next fade? Do you think it's going to be like Chris Martin from Coldplay or Uh, let's just, do you think it's going to, let's go Enrique Iglesias. (laughs) Let's just get Sting to do it again. Uh, You know, Sting might be able to pull it off. You put enough makeup on him. He'd probably be able to do it. Maybe he has a son or a nephew that could make it. I don't know. They'll probably try to get somebody who is around um, Timothy Chalamet's age, um, Mm -hmm. uh, around that age, maybe a little bit older, but not too much older. Zac Efron, I I don't know. Maybe like one of the Jonas Brothers. I mean, it's Fade Sing. Is that like why Sting was? No, he doesn't. He doesn't sing. Okay, just checking. They just cast him in that. We'll have to. You you won't believe. And he's in it for like five minutes in the. 1984 version. I can't wait. This is going to be awesome. And, um, yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, the Harkonnens, uh, they did a nice job because the Harkonnens are, are really disgusting in the books. Really? And they're pretty disgusting in the 1984 movie uh, as well. Because Frank Herbert, when he wrote the book in 1965, one of the, the tropes of that era was that, um, how should I say that? 
I, I don't really want to get into it, but um, let's just say Baron Harkonnen likes uh, children. Oh. Oh. Young young men. Um, oh my. And, and that was a popular trope in those decades for somebody to be depraved and evil to, you know, kind of have a a predilection toward homosexuality. There, I can say it without parsing words. Well, that's awkward. Yeah, it's it's awkward. Uh, it's the grossest part of the book. Um, n- like, they don't get into graphic detail with it or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of it makes you feel icky because there's really, like, there's no reason for it to, to be like that. And then they kind of amp it up a little bit in the 84 movie. So uh, it was nice uh, for Baron Harkonnen to not necessarily be this depraved person in this version of Baron Harkonnen was more of this mastermind scheming type of mm-hmm. sinister person. And you didn't, you didn't need that other stuff in there yeah. to make him a, you know, to make him the bad guy, to make him the antagonist. So, uh, yeah. Um, some, some casting differences. Kyle McLaughlin is, uh, Paul Atreides, um, Patrick Stewart's Gurney Halleck. In, uh, in this version. Wow, those are some really casting, big casting differences uh, from this version. Sean Young is Chani in, uh, in the Dune 1984. What? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a whole thing, man. Like, oh, wow. Y- you, you watch that movie and you think you have ingested spice. It is... <laughs> it's, it's a trip. Oh my goodness. And, and that's why I'm so impressed with kind of the coherency of this movie because Dune is, I, I, I've described it before as intensely weird. And I think it, it holds. It's an intensely weird book and an intensely weird world. And I'm really impressed that, that in this movie they were able to present it as kind of, um, I wouldn't say a typical science fiction fantasy world, but that's kind of what it's it relatively is. normal. It's relatively normal. To what I was expecting. Yeah, because um, it is. I mean, we're we're talking secret religious orders and guys who with repulsors who fly and uh, messianic visions and sandworms and it's not as crazy as the never ending story or you know Xanadu or like some of those other interesting things that came out of the 80s so so, so, so they did a good job of grounding yeah uh, of grounding it and and kind of making it um relatable and i you know again you're somebody who's seen a lot of science fiction and fantasy stuff and 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 you didn't have a whole lot of trouble necessarily following it and i think that is a really good thing because um, I know that the the teenage Chalamet uh, fans uh, that you heard in the, talking overheard them talking in the bathroom that, that they didn't necessarily get it, but I I think I think I think it's accessible enough for people who are willing to kind of put a little bit of thought into it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so Dune Dune Part One. Um, that's a surprise when you see that come up on the title <laughs> screen. When so, what are your thoughts about what's going to happen in Part Two? Well, I, I would imagine, given that a lot of the stuff that, you know, they, they translated either directly or, or pretty much uh, inspired, uh, took it from the text, I think the second part of the book is going to be um, very, or the second move will be very similar to the second part of the book. Um, the um, House of Trades will, uh, he'll, he'll train with the Fremen, uh, Paul will, and he'll kind of mold them into this fighting force. 
and uh, they will take uh, work to take back Dune. Uh, Paul will probably learn to to ride a sandworm because that's one thing. That um, was cool that when you do. found out that that's how they get that, around. That's how they can get around from siege to siege is to ride the sandworms. Um, that's a skill. You know, the funny thing about uh, in in the books and in the uh, Paul is like the guy who's good at everything. Like he immediately understands like Fremen culture and the still suits and all that stuff. Um, but he has trouble uh, mastering riding the sandworm. So, and he eventually does, you know, but that's part of his character arc. Uh, they eventually, um, they eventually confront the, the emperor. Um, do it. Not quite that type of emperor, but they do, <laughs> they do, uh, you know, um, there's a fight with the Harkonnens. Uh, there's like a duel between Paul and Fade, the, 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 the good Harkonnen. Um, there's more political you know, intrigue that, that goes on as well. Um, so there, there's a, there's a, a plot. Um, well, and Lady Jessica's preggers, what happens with that? Preggers, she has her baby. Um, yes, she has her baby uh, because she takes what's called the water of life, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is sandworm bile, if I oh, remember geez. correctly. Wait, oh, um, but if you take it and you survive, it's supposed to mean something to the Fremen. So, uh, no man has ever survived. Guess who takes it and survives? Paul Atreides. And unlocks his magical powers to the next level. Of course level. it does. Um, Lady, mm, Lady Jessica takes it. And uh, because she's pregnant when she takes it, uh, it turns her, her baby into like this super baby. What? Who has all the memories of all of the past Bene Gesserit Reverend Mothers who's, who've lived. Shut up. And so, like, she comes out of the womb, uh, grows fat. I don't remember if she grows fast or not, but when she's, like, a toddler, she, like, talks. She could she could discuss books with you and current events. She's like the Renesmee Cullen of Doom. There you go. That's, that's a good. That's nuts. That, that's a good... Um, that is nuts. That's a good approximation there. Yeah. Wow. So that that's what happens to, to her little girl. Um, Aaliyah, I think, is what her name ends up being. Um she becomes a very powerful uh, person in her own right, even though she's, you know, knee high Aww. to a knee high to the, the corn there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to go on. You've got to develop the the the, the relationship between Shawnee and Paul uh, because they become a couple. <gasps> bow, chicka, bow, bow. Uh, they have a couple kids, and and th- their kids end up in subsequent books. From my understanding, their kids end up being really important. Uh, to the history of the galaxy. It's not so much necessarily Paul, who's so important as we see him right now. The kids end up being uh, becoming um, very, very important. I think he names one of them after his fa- father, too. One of them ends up being a Duke Leto, like Duke Leto II or something like that. So, uh, but that, he has the kids and stuff. I think they have the kids in the, in the <laughs> All I can book. think of is like, Duke Jared Leto. <laughs> Duke Jared. Um, so th- there is a lot of ground um, to cover still, and I know that I'm forgetting some stuff. Um, also, uh, what, what do you think of the concept of the still suit? I thought it was gross, but yeah. very cool idea. It was very fascinating. Uh, I thought the still suits were cool. Uh, did you notice when they were getting them all dressed that uh, Paul was the only one who knew how to wear one? Yeah, that was kind of neat. That was kind of neat. 
Um, one of the characters they changed a little bit was Dr. Liet Kynes in the book. It's just like a white dude um, who learns the ways of the Fremen in this. You know, she's a person of color. Uh, but just say it. She's a black lady. She's a black lady, and it doesn't change the character at all. It just no. gives the, the movie a little bit more um, diversity. She goes out like a badass, too, um, being chased by a Sardaukar, and then she summons a sandworm that comes and swallows them all. It's pretty awesome. Um, which, in the in the book, uh, he just kind of gets stranded in the desert and dies of dehydration. <laughs> so uh, Much cooler ending uh, that m- way. Much cooler ending this way. Um, they didn't really... In, one of the big things about the the book and the whole Dune world is uh, thousands of years ago there was something called the Butlerian Jihad, in which uh, men mankind fought against machines. Uh, so I guess they had a Terminator period. I I don't know Skynet. I'm not sure, but anyway, um, they destroyed all machines, uh, all thinking machines, artificial intelligence, AIs, uh, smartphones. You'll notice in this movie you don't see tablet computers. Yeah, smartphones. so even though it's in the future, there's no like. Yeah, it's all gear shifts and combustion engines and you know tactile stuff. I thought that was fascinating. And. So there's not a whole lot of like advanced what we would consider arm-based uh, or um, semiconductor-based smartphones and computers and stuff like that. They don't have that um, because they didn't want to rely on that stuff anymore. So um, they have mentats, which are basically living people computers who can um, calculate numbers and make projections and stuff like a computer could. It's just they've trained their mind to do that there's some spice involved in uh, developing a mentat as well so we saw a couple of them uh through fear the the kind of the rotund guy with the parasol mm-hmm. he, yes he, <laughs> he looked like he walked out of the hunger <clears throat> games yes uh he he is the mentat of house atreides uh-huh. and then um the guy uh baba yaga come at night that yeah, guy, david dismulchin uh, he's the, his name's Piter, I think. And he was the mentat for, uh, House Harkonnen. But of course he died, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, so the computer people can be killed. They can be killed. Yes. Darn. Uh, another thing that they, they left out, and I don't know if they'll get back to it in this or not, but, you know, Duke Leto and his people are fairly certain there are traitors to House Atreides on Arrakis. Mm-hmm. And, um... Some of them are convinced that the traitor's Lady Jessica. Oh. Because there, there's a, some misdirections and stuff like that in which they've tried to steer people in that direction. And so they think that his wife, well, not his wife, his concubine, is trying to undermine him and is working for somebody else, that she's the traitor in the House of Trades, um, which it's clearly not. It was it was the doctor. Uh, they didn't get into that in this movie at all. They didn't mm-hmm. really get in. You know, one of the things that you lose in a movie adaptation is time that you can spend on a page with characters getting into their thoughts and just spending more time with people because you've got a lot of pages that you can use to cover. You don't get that. So you get, they didn't discuss mentats at all. Like, we, no, we didn't like discuss that's something that concept we didn't, at all. I didn't know about until after. So if you, if you hadn't read the book and didn't know anything about Dune, you wouldn't have known about that side of things. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, so, the doctor doesn't have much development. The plot against House Atreides doesn't really have much development. It's just they kind of get there, somebody sells them out, and there's a battle, you know. 
and, and that that's that's the sacrifice of translating something from page to screen. You've got to make sacrifices and figure out what you're going to take out and what you're going to leave in. Sure. And stuff like that. Um, but a lot of the book is there. A lot of the book is there. Fear is the mind killer. Uh, they they go through that whole incantation in in, in the in the movie. Um, I mean, it does progress very similarly from what I recall from the book. Again, I've read it. I've read it one time. Um, but having read the book and seeing the 1984 movie and then seeing this version, you know, I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding about how things go. Um, so there is no way we saw this two and a half hour movie. I thought it was paced. Well, I didn't think it slowed. I didn't think it was slow. Um, pacing wise, you only got half the story. And can you believe that they tried to do that in the 1984 version in two hours? That's crazy. Yeah. And then the book, uh, and you, you'll see this if we watch the 1984 one, but the book has a lot of internal monologue. Uh, people thinking to themselves, as, as they often do in text, and they tried to use that technique in the movie. Oh, weird. With people just sort of speaking their thoughts. <laughs> but their lips aren't moving. But their like, lips aren't moving. talking? And they're often whispering. And it's like, oh. yeah, it's like, the sleeper has awakened. What is this? How are they doing this? It's... <laughs> Awkward turtle. We'll, we'll, we'll just say it's misguided. <laughs> oh, um, man. But, um, so yeah, uh, to wrap up, I, I will say this. As soon as the credits rolled, Anne did kind of grab an arm and go, I hope they make a part two. Yeah. Because you want to know how the how the story I ends. I do. I do. I really liked it. I thought it was a very good movie. Yeah, I, I think they did a solid, solid adaptation of a very difficult book to adapt. Uh, kudos to everybody. The acting's good. Um, there's a guy in it named Duncan Idaho that still amuses me. And they should no win end. at least two Oscars. They should win for Oscar Isaac's hair. So <laughs> definitely hair and makeup. And they should also win for cinematography. Cinematography it was and special effects were great. I thought the score was good too. Oh yeah. Well, who did it? Uh, Hans Zimmer. Zimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, no post-credit sequence. Uh, there's no uh, Paul Atreides will return in Dune Part Two at that the end of the credits. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> James Bond will return. Paul Atreides will return. Thanos will return. Uh, nothing, nothing like that there. So once the movie's uh, credits are going, I mean, feel free to read all the names of the people who worked so hard to put the movie together. But there's no reason to stay for an in-credit sequence. It's not like Nick Fury shows up and recruits Baron Harkonnen or anything like that. Yeah, that would be an awkward conversation too. <laughs> you are really, really obese. <laughs> I think I'm in the wrong movie. So, well, any, anything else to, to add to Dune, Anne? No, I think... Do uh, I need to download the book into your Kindle so you can read it? I have the book. Oh, do you? I do. Oh, I have right. the That's right. You book. got it for Christmas. I got it for Christmas. I think my brother gave it to good, me. Good doorstop book. Yeah, I have yet to read it. But I'm kind of glad, too, that I hadn't read it yet. No, I am, I am too. I, I almost wish that I hadn't read it. You know what I mean? Because um, I would have liked to have seen the... You, you you lend that perspective to me, thankfully, but I, I would also, for myself, like to maybe have experienced the movie and not known uh, what was going to happen and, and what was, you know, happening with the world and all that stuff. But, on the other hand, uh, it also, having read the book, enriched my understanding of the movie as well. So, um, it works it works either way. It, it just works. The movie works. So, it's got a great cast, great cinematography, good score, 
And uh, there will probably not be any show notes or anything because we just kind of free-formed this po- podcast. So uh, <laughs> my apologies for that. But uh, I think that'll wrap it up for this edition of the Matt Adams Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Statomatty, S-T-A-T-O-M-A-T-T-Y, at Statomatty. Or swing me an email, matt at mattadamswriter.com, matt at mattadamswriter.com. And Anne, where can the people find you? Wherever Matt is. Or on Arrakis. Probably not Arrakis. Don't want to go to Arrakis. Not not even really a place I want to visit. No, you get too much sand up your nose. I'm not good in the sun. All right, talk to you later. (laughs) See ya.